0: This is TechSnap, episode 359. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on March 15th, 2018. It is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, IX Systems, and Ting. My name is Chris, and join us every single week the tech, the admin, and the presenter, Mr. Payne, Mr. West Payne. Hello, Chris. It's nice to have you back in the studio. Yeah, I was at scale last week. It was pretty great. Bumped into a few TechSnap audience members. And, you know, while I'm on the road, we figured there probably wouldn't be enough time for research. And the TechSnap program takes a special amount of prep and research. So we figured we'd wait till I get back, do the show right.
1: But don't worry, dear audience. We'll make it up to you in the future. We'll have lots of opportunities, especially with
0: some exciting things coming up. Yeah, Linux Fest Northwest is going to be a special time for the TechSnap program. But let's just jump into it. Let's start with our warm-up story this week. It turns out there was some hard-coded passwords in some Cisco gear. What? Oh,
1: that's right. So last week, Cisco released 22 security advisors. yeah, 22, including two for so-called critical fixes. One of which is a hard coded SSH password. Oh, no way. Yeah. So, this is a, this hard coded password is in their PCP appliance, which is prime collaboration provisioning. I had not heard of this before, but (laughs) apparently it's a software application that can be used for remote installation and maintenance of other Cisco product offerings. Like their VoIP stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's frequently installed on Linux servers. You can go to use that server and then, you know, provision your Uh, Cisco products. Oh, sure. That makes sense unfortunately, all you have to do is connect over SSH, use the hard-coded password, and you have access.
0: So this requires local access, but Cisco's still labeling this sucker as a critical flaw. Yeah, it looks like they're just concerned enough
1: about the possibility of other systems being compromised, as well as possibly some of the Linux systems that this software is running on, that they're treating this as a critical vulnerability. Just make sure people are aware that they need to patch. They shouldn't treat it as low risk. There are also no temporary mitigations, so...
0: If you have this affected product, go get the patch. So there's also a second critical level of vulnerability that Cisco fixed in this 22-patch extravaganza.
1: Yeah, that's right. This one is a Java deserialization issue. Kind of a classic deserialization problem. You're taking some untrusted input from the user. In this case, it's serialized Java content. And then, of course, the thing that deserializes it on the Cisco end, well... It's
0: running on root. So if you send it specially crafted input, (laughs) boom. Now you're root. Root privileges. Love it. Love it. Okay. So that is a deprecated piece of software. Um, I mean, it's still getting patched, but I don't think Cisco's actively selling it anymore. Right. This is in Cisco's secure
1: access control system, ACS. But of course, as we know with a lot of this, you know, fancy, expensive proprietary networking equipment, you spend a lot of money. You often keep it in place for as long as it's useful. This is an important reminder that even and especially those older systems, keep up to date on your patches.
0: Our next story, ours is calling one of the most advanced attack platforms ever. They say it was potent malware that hid for six years and spread through routers. We're talking about Slingshot
1: which gets its name from some text recovered from malware samples and was discovered by the Moscow-based Kaspersky Lab. In a 25-page report they released last week, they write that the malware is highly advanced, solving all kinds of problems from a technical perspective and often in elegant ways, right? This has this has levels of polish. It combines older and newer components in a thoroughly thought-through long-term operation, something to expect from a top-notch, well-resourced actor. Like a nation-state is the implication there. Exactly. The researchers still don't know precisely how Slingshot initially infected all of its targets. In several cases, though, Slingshot operators got access to routers made by Microtech and planted some malicious code. Specifics of the router technique still aren't quite figured out, but they involve using a Microtech configuration utility called Winbox to download dynamic link library files from the router's file system. One of these files, uh, conspicuously named ipv4.dll, is a malicious download agent created by the developers of Slingshot. Winbox transfers this DLL to the target's
0: computer, loads it into memory, and executes it. Ooh. So once they have this ipv4.dll into memory, what's it do? What happens next? Sure. So it starts
1: out connecting to a hard-coded IP address and downloads a bunch of additional malicious components and, of course, runs them. It runs this by, you know, it it wants to operate in kernel mode here to to have maximum control, but these platforms are using driver signature enforcement. So it looks like they have some signed vulnerable drivers. They load those and then use those drivers to execute additional malware.
0: Oh, I'd like to know more about
1: this. Yes, that seems like something that we should probably Mm. be hearing more about. I'll keep my eyes out. After infection, Slingshot loads a whole bunch of additional modules, including two especially powerful modules. One, Ndriver, is a kernel module, and is connected to Golem App, a user space module. Golem App is by far the most sophisticated, and it's responsible for most of the attacks we've seen. So things like persistence, file system control, and all of its communications abilities. N-Driver contains low-level routines for network, IO operations, and so on. So N-Driver is sort of a bootstrap, and then Gollum app uses n as well as sure. a bunch of additional code to do, accomplish all those things. So N-Driver is living down at the kernel space. Yeah, it's written in C, and it provides full access to the hard drive, operating system memory, you know, pretty
0: much anything. The research paper goes on to say that this has been active since at least 2012 and had remained operational just until last month which is when Kaspersky started digging into this more.
1: Yeah, it really does seem quite clever. One of the ways Slingshot was able to conceal itself was use of an encrypted virtual file system that was located somewhere on an unused part of the drive. So it's not even, you know, an official registered scan file system. Sure. And a lot of times that was enough to get past, you know, a, a
0: standard run-of-the-mill antivirus engine. Yeah, you're scanning the file system. You're not looking for parts that look completely unpartitioned. You don't scan that typically. Yeah, exactly. Some other techniques
1: include encrypting all strings in its various modules, calling system services directly to by- bypass a lot of the, the monitored hooks, and the ability to shut down components when
0: forensic tools are loaded. So it'll notice that you're scanning it and shut down. It's funny because this research sort of confirms like one of my quasi fears that these malware tools are is only as good as long as the malware authors are actually using the official system hooks and APIs. If, like in the case of Slingshot, they just do it on their own and don't use the built-in hooks, there's nothing for these malware detection tools to trigger.
1: Yeah, that may be another sign. You know, they have a lot of resources here to reimplement a lot of that, and and it makes their attacks more,
0: more sophisticated. Yeah, that must have taken a lot of research to find undocumented ways to accomplish the things they're doing at the level they're doing them. It must be for some big purpose like espionage, hiding itself in a hidden partition on the hard drive, remaining undetected since 2012, which is remarkable. Having two parts, one part that downloads new modules so it can do new fun things, and another part that buries itself down into the Windows kernel. This is remarkable. And you can, you're looking at this thing, it can grab anything from clipboard contents to screenshots, keyboard data, network data, passwords, USB connection data. Dang, that must have been a hell of a software development project. Yeah, one other
1: interesting tidbit here is uh, the researchers noticed that the debug messages they're written in perfect English.
0: That must be the Russians. <laughs> TechSnap.ting.com. Ting Ting is a smarter way to do mobile. The average Ting bill is just 23 U.S. greenbacks per phone per month. It's pay for what you use, nationwide coverage, and no contracts. $6 for the line, and it's just your messages, your minutes, and your megabytes. I took Ting with me on the way to scale, and it was killer. I did Linux Unplugged and Coda Radio tethered off my Nexus 6P. ...on the Ting CDMA network. Lots of flexibility. That's one of the things I love about Ting is they have a CDMA and a GSM network. That also means they support a ton of devices. Check out their BYOD page or go grab a brand new one directly from Ting. Just start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit if you bring your own. They have world-class customer service. Nobody does it better. The best dashboard you can fully manage from activating a device to terminating the device from the Ting dashboard. Cacksnap.ting.com A major flaw in Samba 4 has been announced this week, and it affects everything from 4.0 onwards. Samba 4
1: added the capability to be an Active Directory domain controller, so watch out if that's what you're using it for as it incorrectly validates permissions to modify passwords over LDAP, which allows any authenticated user to change any other user's password, including administrative and service accounts.
0: Wow, that's pretty significant. Yeah, the
1: details are that the LDAP server incorrectly validates certain LDAP password modifications against the change password privilege, Hmm. but then performs a password reset
0: operation. Wow, I could definitely see an alternate reality version of Chris scrambling to patch this right now. The Samba Project has shipped out several patches to address this issue, but I imagine some of you may be in a position to do nothing at the moment. Perhaps you can't patch. Well, they do have some workarounds I've identified on their wiki, but I don't think you're going to like your options. The simplest
1: option is just disable LDAP. If If you're not using LDAP just turn it off. But of course, LDAP is a fairly important component of an Active Directory domain, so this probably isn't viable for the long term. If you want to get a little more nuanced, you can revoke the change passwords right altogether. So this basically makes it that a user can change their own password, but no other account passwords.
0: That seems like it would present a particular challenge when users call in in the morning and they can't get logged in after a long weekend, and they need you to reset their password. What do you do?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and and then in cases where you have like mixed OS environments, there's a lot of complications here. So one thing to do in particular is set a, set a temporarily long max password age and just make sure that people won't have to worry about resetting their passwords. Their passwords won't expire
0: during the time that you're, you know, until the time that you're able to patch. But of course here, just go get the patch. I deployed a lot of Samba servers in my day, and these kind of things come and go. This isn't the first Samba vulnerability, and it won't be the last because it's an extremely sophisticated project that's setting off to do a lot. This one, though, is particularly egregious because it's been around since 4.0 and it allows anyone to change anyone's passwords. So, our tip, as always, is to patch your S, but in this particular case, you may want to consider disabling the password change option until you can get the software deployed. Let's Encrypt is making some exciting headlines this week with a couple of big features they're rolling out, and one that I've particularly been waiting for. What's going on with Let's Encrypt, Wes? Well, a long-awaited feature
1: is finally here. That's right, the thing you've been waiting for. Well, maybe wildcard certificates. Wild
0: That sounds like some sort of fun game, but uh, it's not a card game, is it, Wes?
1: No. If you're not familiar, wild card certificates allow you to secure all subdomains of a single domain, so star.jupiterbroadcasting.com, for instance, and you only need a single certificate. They can make certificate management easier in some cases, and they really wanted to address those in order to help get the web to 100% HTTPS, which is kind of one of their charter missions they do still recommend that non-wildcard certificates be used for most cases. And, you know, that's already the situation today. It's easy to do if you have, you know, particular subdomains. It's not hard to get their automated software to just make it work.
0: There's more and more tools to do that now, too. It's There's really an ecosystem that's been built up around Let's Encrypt. We were just reviewing some of them before the show. Okay, so that's one part of it, wildcard. So what's Acme version 2? Yes. So wildcard support was waiting on Acme version 2. And as a consequence,
1: it's a feature only of Acme v2. So if you need wildcard support, you will need to get a client that supports Acme version 2. They have those listed on their website. Now, Acme is the Automatic Certificate Management Environment Protocol. And this is what Let's Encrypt has helped develop along the way. And that's what the automated software uses if you've used any other certificate issuer, you're probably used to logging into a form, having to enter some credentials, a manual process where you click through several web forms. Oh, yeah. It's not a lot of fun. No. Let's encrypt change that. And, and Acme is part of that story. It's what, it's the protocol that allows, you know, secure certificates to be transferred automatically. They have several different means of proving that you control that domain. Now, Wildcard, they're only supporting DNS01. Um, this means you'll need to be able to modify DNS text records in order to demonstrate that you control that domain. Now it seems pretty fair though. Yeah. Wildcard. And if you need Wildcard, like that's not an unreasonable hoop to jump through. No, not at all. It's easy. Another nice thing to see here is that Acme version two has gone through the IETF standards process. It's received a whole bunch of feedback from industry experts and other organizations. And I think that's a good sign for a future adoption, even at, outside Let's Encrypt. Boy, it's going to be pretty hard to be a Let's
0: Encrypt critic these days. That's for sure. The TechSnap news extravaganza continues on with a story about exploiting memcache servers that potentially make it much easier now to wage record-breaking DDoS attacks. Yeah, we saw some of the first evidence last
1: month when DDoSers started bouncing specially crafted traffic off of these memcache servers, which then responded by bombarding a third party with a crazy giant flood of traffic. Now, this is known as an amplification technique where DDoS attackers are able to send a small amount of traffic to a middleman server, which then amplifies that attack against a targeted third party. What's special about these memcache-based attacks is really the size of the amplification. With things like DNS, we've often seen, you know, a 50 to 60-fold increase.
0: Here, it's been up to 51,000 times. Wow, that's at a scale we have never covered in the TechSnap program. So how do these attacks work? How do they make this possible? This is relying on you know, open uh, Memcached servers.
1: It's an in-memory cache, if you're not familiar. You know, you just use to to temporarily store data in RAM for quick access. It operates on port 11,211. And when these are left open to the internet, people sending packets with spoofed headers can then amplify the traffic they've sent,
0: bounce it off these Memcached servers, and attack someone else. I see. So the spoofed headers essentially lead the Memcached server to respond to the selected target. Yeah, exactly.
1: It's like sending a false return address when you're sending a letter, except you're sending thousands and
0: thousands of letters. Didn't something like this take GitHub offline just a few days ago?
1: Yeah, after this technique went public, there was a record-breaking 1.3 terabit per second attack against GitHub. And then, a couple days later, an even larger attack of 1.7 terabits per second against an as-yet-unnamed U.S. service provider. So far, we've seen two separate exploits that are, you know, just publicly available that really lower the bar for waging these types of attacks. The first one is called MemCrashed. All right, well, props, that's a pretty good name. It prompts a user to enter the IP address of your target. It then automatically scans Shodan to locate any unsecured Memcache servers that it can find and then just uses them to flood the target.
0: Ah, the good old Shodan database comes up again. The second
1: exploit just uses a static list of 17,000 unsecured Memcache servers and uses those in the attack.
0: So what I'm hearing is we have a lot of unpatched Memcache servers out there. Exactly. Memcache or Memcached is an open source distributed memory caching system that's designed to speed up websites like Jupyter Broadcasting is accelerated on the scale engine CDN using Memcache, I'm pretty sure. It's a pretty common open source project. It's a great way to accelerate a website. So there's got to be a lot of them out there. And I suppose if the state is in RAM, perhaps system administrators aren't as concerned about keeping them patched. I mean, I just kind of think of why we have so many unpatched systems that are contributing to this problem. Yeah. One thing about it is that since it's an amplification
1: attack, sure, you're using you know some outbound network. But if you're not, you know, if you're if your memcache server isn't particularly loaded, maybe it's a QA server. um, there's not a lot of harm to your server, right? It's not going to be crazy loaded. It's not going to it's not going to have a lot of harm to itself, but you are causing real harm to someone else.
0: Ah, right. So it's not like it's totally abusing the server that's actually reflecting the attack. So therefore, there's not a lot of pressure on the administrator to resolve the issue. It's not a massive abuse of system resources other than some bandwidth. Yeah, in the same way, you know,
1: um Another part of this problem is that service providers often permit spoofed packets. So, you know, allow your upstream ISP allowing you to send spoofed packets. But again, here, you know, you're not sending because it's amplification. You're not sending a huge amount of traffic for them. It's just extra work. And so we
0: don't see a huge incentive to fix things. doco slash snap. Digital Ocean is simple cloud hosting that you can deploy at scale as little or as much as you need. And if you go to do.co for a limited time, you can get a $100 credit. doco slash snap. That's our special URL. It's a 60-day free trial. It does require a valid credit card on file, but you will start with a $100 credit. DigitalOcean lets you spin up what they call droplets in under 55 seconds. They have an easy-to-use dashboard, a straightforward, brilliantly documented API, and a ton of documentation to help you take everything further. With eight data centers all over the world, everything's SSD-based, some great technologies at play here, and an interface that works for beginners or total experts. DigitalOcean.com. You can also sign up and just apply our promo code SnapOcean. But I recommend you go to do.co/snap so you can sign up for that hundred dollar credit because DigitalOcean has some new flexible droplets that lets you mix and match resources depending on what your application needs. And their standard droplets have gotten even better for the same great price. Do.co/snap. Netflix often has a really unique approach to managing their systems. And so when it's a good fit, we like to jump on a story on their blog because they have a fascinating approach. And this story could really be summed up in Netflix has learned how to fail really fast and recover really fast. It's called
1: Project Nimble. It was started by a small internal team at Netflix, and and they're really focused on making their data centers ever more available and, and limiting customer impacting outages. Netflix has been based primarily on AWS for a long time now, and they've really had to figure out how to operate well in that particular environment. As we frequently see here on TechSnap, AWS definitely has outages, and if you're reliant on them, that can be a huge problem. We see days where basically the Internet goes down. Netflix isn't
0: willing to let that happen to them, or at least they're going to try really hard to prevent it. Yeah, they're trying to deliver TV over the Internet, and that's a significant tasks are trying to pull off, and they're trying to be nimble, that's hence the name Project Nimble, if AWS has a significant outage. It's fun to glean insights from these Netflix blogs because they really have this stuff figured out. They are really dialed into how to manage these different massive infrastructures like AWS. They're not just trying to replicate their data center in the cloud. They really go at this all in, and as a result, they figured out some really clever tricks to make Project Nimble work. But first, they had to identify why their current failover process was taking so damn long. All right, so it was taking about 15 minutes, and thankfully they have a great
1: breakdown here. To start with, about five minutes was just deciding if they were going to do the
0: failover at all. Do we hit the button? Should we not? Do we hit the button? No. Yes. No. Yes. Do we? No.
1: Yeah. Do we hit the button? Yeah. For five minutes. I'm sure you've been in that situation. You're in, you're in the knock, you know, so you see some alerts come in. Maybe there's some problems in that region and you have to decide, is this intermittent? Is this going to continue? Or do we, do we, we pull the trigger? After that, there's another three to five minutes of just getting new resources from AWS, you know, getting all the new instances, starting new load balancers whatever you need in a different unaffected region then it's about 25 minutes to get hosts booted up services installed operating normally plus another 10 minutes to proxy all the traffic from the affected region to the new region
0: and five minutes to cut over all the dns changes so when all said and done you add up all those steps it's about 50 minutes which is a really long time. And that's a lot of customers because you figure they've got a huge scale. They're dealing with 117 million customers who all together watch 140 million hours of content every day off the Netflix servers. So they set some pretty impressive targets
1: here. They wanted to be able to fail over traffic in less than 10 minutes. To reach that 10 minute target, they came up with something they call dark capacity, which is a solution to try to combine the benefit of extra capacity, but without all the burden of actually operating and maintaining it. So rather than have a configuration management system like Chef or, or Ansible provision an instance from a, from a base image after launch, Netflix bakes AMIs. Uh, there's some popular tools out there. One of them is known as Packer. Um, you basically, you know, pre-configure an AMI. It's like an Im- old style image from the, from the sure. physical world. The key insight is that they realized they could keep instances hidden away in shadow auto scaling groups that would work as dark groups, sort of just topping off capacity for the services that they were shadowing. They based this on a relatively unknown detach and attach instance mechanism that AWS provides for EC2 autoscaling groups. Essentially, they can pluck an instance from the dark autoscaling group and push it into the ether, and then make a subsequent EC2
0: API call to pop it into the running service group. I like this idea of dark capacity. So it just is sort of standing by, ready to go, not totally connected into the system, not part of all of the monitoring stuff, but ready as soon as they need it instantly. Exactly. So then they created an orchestrator that basically just manages this process, pops instances
1: off, keeps track of them, and then adds them where they're needed. (laughs) Oh, Netflix.
0: They also talk about in this blog post about how nearly all the Netflix production applications inherent from a base, AMI Image again, And then the base AMI provides well-known Netflix environment features like consistent packages, their system configuration, their kernel with their tuning parameters, and a pre-populated set of environment variables. A key feature that they've added here working with the base AMI team is they were able to add features
1: so that it auto-detects what auto-scaling group it's in. And then they've also added additional support for this new dark capacity so that... You know, this is baked right into the image. All they have to do is spin up a new auto scaling group based on their pre-configured, pre-baked AMI. And then the
0: orchestrator does the rest. Yeah. And they say by doing this, the dark instances match the system's environment. They're shadowing and are just blissfully unaware of their actual location. It's so
1: clever. Beautiful. So using dark capacity, they were able to do it. They can now complete the operation in about eight minutes as opposed to the previous 50, which wow. that's huge to do all that, you know, develop the new system, get it deployed, took a two person team about six months. And I think that's just a neat example of, you know, if you ha- when you have talented people and they're given the runway to do it, there's a lot you can accomplish.
0: IXSystems.com slash TexNet. IX Systems creates open source-driven enterprise storage and server hardware and software solutions for thousands of clients. And many of those clients have been customers of IX Systems for decades. They're headquartered in Silicon Valley with all of their products built and supported in the US of A. They're part of an open source ecosystem and that enables them to deliver the highest value at the best return on interest for you. You can go deploy something built around open source and know that A, you're getting the best solution possible. B, it's backed by a company with deep ties in the open source community. IX contributes directly upstream in code and in financial contributions to the projects that they rely upon to deliver the solutions that you depend upon ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap is where you go to support this show and learn more about ix systems. You can also get their server buying guide, which helps grease the wheels up the chain. If you need to move to a better hardware vendor, you will be satisfied. After grinding out a hard thirteen years deploying server hardware, there is only one solution provider I recommend, and it's ix systems. ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap Thanks for going to TechSnap.Systems slash contact to send in your feedback, your follow-up, and best of all, your questions. Alex wrote in this week in response to Alex from two weeks ago. And he says, Dear Chris and Wes, as a current owner of 160 terabytes of multimedia data, I want to write in with my suggestion for Alex for his data needs. Now, he says, I know you guys are big fans of FreeNAS and ZFS, and I agree, if you have the money and you can afford it for some extra disks, that's definitely the way to go. But I want to recommend Unraid, which was originally geared towards home users and their media collections, and maybe you could say prosumers. I use it for my business as well every single day. I have a small Unraid server with about 40 terabytes of data served up to five clients around my plant, which the data is being pulled on board into a SQL database, which is running in Docker on the Unraid server. He says it works flawlessly and it's easy to manage. He also has it on a 4U Super Micro box. He says it's great for local-based workloads and I can't speak enough about how well it works. It's just another option for Alex to consider. And this is from Alex M. And I, the reason why I wanted to read this email is because I'd say we got a handful, more than five emails recommending Unraid this week. Never really personally used it except for a look at it a few years ago. I've always sort of been FreeNAS first. Uh, You heard Alex's description there. It was originally geared towards home users and their media collections. He said prosumers. And I've always come at it from an enterprise storage perspective. I started in enterprise storage. And so when I rolled something out for JB, I wanted something that was enterprise storage but manageable by humans. I am also a big fan of ZFS for obvious reasons. Uh, But I'm not opposed to Unraid. And so I'd really like to solicit feedback from anybody in the audience that's used it. In a high-capacity situation, you know, with more than a few users, I'd love to know your experience with Unraid because I'm tempted to kick the tires, and you could push me over. Go to techsnap.systems slash contact. Have you had a chance to play with Unraid at all?
1: You know, I have not. I kind of have fallen in your camp as well. I got hooked on ZFS, and yeah. there we go. Do you want to take uh, Mr. Oliver's email there about fail-to-ban? Hello, Wes and Chris. I have failed to ban working on my DigitalOcean droplet, and I saw that I have about two to four bans every minute. So I'm wondering, can I set up fail to ban to use the network DigitalOcean firewall within, you know, within the the native DO data center to block the traffic of banned IPs? I'm also wondering, is there any sort of community feature so that IPs that are banned by other hosts are blocked automatically to my droplet? Thanks for the information and
0: uh, any ideas you might have on how to pull this off. So the DigitalOcean firewall is a network level firewall that's happening at the routing equipment before it even gets to your droplet. So my suspicion would be there's no way to synchronize those two things and they probably wouldn't want to open that up. My suspicion also is that they are correlating the traffic that they see coming into the different DigitalOcean data centers. They've got them all over the world and they are probably creating a list on their own. Um, But the idea is kind of sound, like, wouldn't it be interesting to have some sort of community feature? And you and I were talking about different ways to pull that off. And uh, Alan actually jumped in, Alan Jew jumped in on the email thread. And he said, you know, I'm not so sure about fail to ban Oliver. But he says, another similar program that I use, Deny Host, supports an optional distributed block list, which... Uh, Deny host itself doesn't seem to be like a super active project, but the site's still up and there is a shared distributed deny list that people are contributing to.
1: Neat. Yeah. You know, I know there's a couple other um, open source projects you can find that that enable you to use third party block lists, sync them down from various
0: places. So there's a
1: lot of options there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You found a cool tool this week, Mr. West, that we want to share with the audience. So We thought we'd stick it here in the feedback segment. It's S3 scanner and it's a scanner for open S3 buckets, and then it dumps what it finds. And the screenshot alone is pretty telling. You just point it at a text file containing the buckets to check, and it's off to the races. Now, what were you looking for this particular tool for, Wes?
1: Oh, nothing malicious. I Actually, I think it could be pretty helpful if you just have some some ranges to scan, maybe some clients, maybe your own buckets. Uh, just go, you know, it's a, it's a great way to check yourself before you wreck yourself.
0: Yeah, we'll have links to that and everything we've talked about this week at techsnap.systems slash 359. That brings us to the end of today's program. You can find all of the links to subscribe to our show every single week at techsnap.systems/slash subscribe. And to catch my stories from scale, I'll also give a plug to the Tech Talk Today program, techtalk.today. And one more shameless plug because of the special occasion: go check out Coda Radio 300. Coda Radio just hit 300 episodes. And that episode will be coming out just around this year. Podcast. I know. I'll be watching. I'm really excited about it. And you know, we we the TexNet program crossed the 300 mark 59 episodes ago. So we're not all that impressed. But it's good to see the other. Congratulations. Yeah. Good. Good on you. We did that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow Wes online. He's at Wes Payne on the Twitters. I'm at Chris Las. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. And links again, TechSnap.Systems slash 359 and our contact and question page, TechSnap.Systems slash contact. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.